Welcome to season five, the final season of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we've been talking to some real life experts on how they've been getting through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and still those darn feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we have been more than prepared for this moment than we ever would have realized. So let's get started and see what we can relearn one last time. Welcome back. It's Friday, February 26th. It's 12 p.m. Uh, or so in the Pacific Western side of the States and 3 uh, p.m. or so on the Eastern uh, side of the country. And that's where we are today with our friend, Danielle. Uh, Danielle, I have so many questions. I have so many follow-up things to discuss. And this is our final interview. Um, and I'm so glad that you were able to make the time today. I want to talk vaccines. I want to talk that kuo meter you talked about in previous interviews and we want to talk about what are you going to remember and carry with you forward about this time in terms of lessons and ideas and things to put in a time capsule of sorts um, as we move forward so thank you again and i'm curious just because it's been a few months since we last spoke and there's been insurrections a third vaccine that's approved uh johnson and johnson the one shot um we've got biden uh slipping on some things we just you know bombed syria last night um you know there's a series of things uh going on right now so just wondering what's top of mind for you what are you tracking and noticing? And um, what are your thoughts and reflections on some key things to maybe remember and reflect on from the last couple of months since the inauguration and right before that? Thanks, Felicia, for having me and for this whole year of experience of gathering and, and talking about everything that's going on. And for this, you know, time capsule, I'm, I'm just really interested in that invitation uh, that that you made of you know what are the things that we need people to never forget from this time, and I'm hoping to focus most of our conversation around what I've learned from COVID, but I do definitely want to follow up on the the political changes in the country. Funny story, um, I'm part of this group uh, that it has been it's it's a democracy pod that is gathered around the work of Gene Sharp. And that's where I found out about the Kuo meter. Is this a coup.com? That's where I found out about that before the election. And I didn't show up to all the meetings of this group, but people you know, showed up week after week to prepare. And one of the things that was mentioned in this group is that sometimes in the moment, what we understand in the future was a coup in the moment does not seem like that. And I remember when the attack happened on the Capitol, I was like, wait a minute, this just seems like a bunch of clueless jerks who wanted to, you know, raise a ruckus who went to the Capitol and caused violence. Like, is that actually a coup? Because in my mm -hmm. mind, that to me is a riot. That's not a coup. I think of, when I think of a coup, I think of like military generals, like smoking cigars in some secret room, you know, making plans. And I didn't think this of it. It's so very much. detailed. 
Yes. <laughs> are there phones? Are there phones that are like rotary phones ringing and there's smoke? Red rotary phones. Yes. <laughs> and I hadn't thought about it quite this way until I, I wrote, of course, to the to this list serve. When when the events happened, I was like, guys, is this a coup? You know, it, it seems like it's just a bunch of idiots. And Lawrence Bariner, our friend, and I talked about it, and he said, this is exactly how Trump would do a coup. This is what that is. of the, his, uh, his Trump's superpower is chaos. And so he has wielded that to create the conditions for people to uprise against the state and try to maintain his power. This is a coup. This is what a Trump coup would look like. And I thought that was really interesting in that context. Um, and, and, you know, also to just notice like the, the importance of actually um, tracking it as such. You know, now we have a political leader out there who has a popular following of people who are willing to rise up and even consider themselves already in civil war. They consider themselves defending their country in doing so. And the way in which this leader incites violence is in a, a kind of indirect way of like, oh, I didn't tell you to go storm the Capitol and threaten people's lives, but look what you did, you know? And I mean, I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, I don't think I've ever thought about a coup happening in the United States. And so my only reference as to what a coup looks like is to look at other countries and to look at other, um, you know, historical moments and um, fiction or not, right? To the point of like, what did this room look like with the smoke filled and the cigars and like, what have you. And um, every time I've, you know, looked at, investigated, researched, taught, learned about a coup in another country, it's usually from someone on the outside of the government who's trying to be the leader of the country, maybe outside of the um, means uh, that the country is trying to do, right? So I'm thinking about Hugo Chavez um, in Venezuela, right? Like he drove a tank with a bunch of military leaders into what is their like White House type area. He drove a tank through the building trying to then, you know, um, take power over the country. Initially, he was arrested, um, much like other leaders, like say Adolf Hitler, who also, you know, attempted a coup from the outside, right? Was arrested, put in jail, and then returned back. And when it comes to Hugo Chavez and Hitler, they were both then elected into the positions that they were trying to take. And what we have here, very two extremes, right? We have like a, a fascist and then like a, a at the time seen as progressive socialists, you know, like taking over things for the people. You could look to so many different moments where, you know, it's usually from the outside. What happened here on, in, in, on the 6th of January was not from the outside, it was from the inside. And can you, can you have a coup takeover when you're already in power? 
Like not leaving is one thing versus trying to get in is another. And so, you know, I, I have spoken to other people on this podcast, a dear mutual friend of ours, uh, Cristobal, who's like, that wasn't a coup. I know what a coup is. And that's not what a coup is. And it's dangerous to call it as such. And so we've learned so much this, this year about, you know, how we define um, people, places, and things, and then frame them for us to then historically be able to look at them from a particular narrative lens. Or maybe those names and definitions and framings change over time, because we're not necessarily going to be the only folks writing and reflecting and trying to tell the story of this moment. And so I don't know what it's called when you don't leave. Isn't that just a dictator when you just don't leave? Um, and you and you have to be like essentially um, escorted out. And and in many ways, Trump was invisibly escorted out. You know, there weren't people like grabbing him by the arms or like telling him you got to go. But the fact that he didn't stay for the inauguration and left the morning of and like all these things, like I think he was invisibly, you know, escorted out by, you know, the fact that nobody was helping him stay. Um, and that that was seen in a particular way. But I'm curious because I didn't look at it anymore. Like once the election had kind of like come and, and gone and been resolved in some ways, I stopped looking at the meter. Were you looking at it this whole time? And where was it on like, say, January 5th? Yeah, so the meter is archived now, but they do have posts on the page from January 4th, January 6th, January 7th, 11th, 19th, that detail the thinking, their thinking about why the meter went from democracy to preparing for a coup to attempted coup. So anybody who wants to see more, it's all laid out there. Um, so they, they call it an attempted coup. They call it an, an attempted coup, and it's not like, you know, it's not high on the attempted coup radar. It's lower mm -hmm. on the on the attempted coup radar, but they do call it a coup. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's what we've been playing with. Is it a coup? Was it an insurrection? Was it a riot? Um, was it, you know, just a protest? And, you know, we know that these various different ways in which we define it or call it and frame it then has a very particular kind of response that it is in partnership and relationship with, right? Like if it's a coup, then it should be met with this. If it was just a riot, it should be met with this. But the thing is that there have also been protests of this last year, this summer, that were, would you call those uprisings then versus riots, right? Like what, what, what in your mind, Danielle, is the difference between an uprising and a riot? And when you look at the sixth and when you look at the events of the summer, what are their distinguishing factors and what would you call them? <laughs> You know, I haven't really rigorously defined those things. I think this is a really good question that you're asking. Um, when I when I think about defining uprising, I think about there there being a contest for power. So um, I think, which I think is distinct from. Um, something that has a less targeted intention. Um, you're muted. 
<laughs> well, and there it is. It finally happened, people. It took over 140 <laughs> interviews for someone to finally say the phrase of the year, the phrase of all Zoom conversations, the phrase of so many telecommuters <laughs> vocabulary. You're muted. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle, for letting me and everyone know that it has finally happened. You get <laughs> the prize for today. Thank yes, you. Yes, I knew it. <laughs> and the prize is that I will continue to be muted for the rest of this interview. No, okay. All right. So here, here's the thing. You know, when I think of uprisings, I think of a people who have been oppressed, fighting for that oppression to be lifted and taking the power back that maybe has been in, you know, contention and also is being taken away. When I think about a coup. Well, it sounds like we agree there then. Yeah. When I think of a coup, I think it's to your earlier point about like, this is, this is about the contention of power, you know, like you won't let me have it this way. So I'm going to take it by any means necessary. And that feels different then, you know, I have never had it and you're currently taking it away, like in every single way, shape or form. But but I'm not really sure. Like, and so, you know, what's happening right now with the vaccines and people, you know, every state, every city, every area having different ways of disseminating the vaccines. It feels like we're on the precipice of either a riot or an uprising um, based on those ideas of like fighting, fighting for just access um, that you may not necessarily have a need for, but you have a desire and a want versus fighting for trying to live and survive because your particular neighborhood, your particular work, your particular health care uh, situation and predicament is putting you at greater risk. And so I wanted to ask you this other question, and maybe this is an interesting or good segue if you're okay with it, and we can come back to, to this conversation piece about definitions and coup versus uprising as well, which is that in Massachusetts, Right now, if you are, you know, an, an elder, uh, it, you can get the vaccine, but you can have a companion come with you of any age and of any health need and of any workplace, and they too can get the vaccine. And the only other place that I've heard of that kind of a way of, you know, distributing the vaccine happening, where it's, you know, you and everyone around you or that you know or that you want to bring with you is actually on like indigenous and Native American reservations, where it's like everyone who you are in contact with, even if they aren't, you know, living or in relation to this tribe is going to get it. Like I have a cousin who is not of this indigenous, you know, tribal group in Alaska, whose whole family is though. And they all got the vaccine and she was able to get it as well because she's in their family. She lives with them. She is their caretaker. She's in close proximity enough to them that she would be in danger to them and them to her if she were able to get the vaccine and not be protected the same way they were. And so it's interesting that in Massachusetts, it could be anyone. And so I'm wondering, have you gone with someone? Have you gone with your parents? Have you thought about it? And what are your feelings about that? So sort of tangentially coups and uprisings, just to tap back on that for a second. New York Times says that a coup is what happens after an uprising, that there is an uprising and the coup is a result of that. 
Oh, wow. So interesting. I, I don't, I want to, I want to just put a pin in it and do like more rigorously look into this. You're going to have to start another podcast where we can actually, <laughs> we could, you know, we could come with a little more resources around the details of these terms. Um, in terms of the vaccine, I'll tell you one controversy in Massachusetts is that teachers got pushed back on the list. So my mom is going to get she's a first grade teacher she's going to be able to get her vaccine for her age before her vaccine availability for being a teacher um and it's interesting too it may be because i'm not tracking this very closely my partner sort of does all the track like does the covid tracking i get briefed about it um yes. but the person in the family really has to take on that role it would seem you know these days. so we give it to the scientists to do that <laughs> and cuz it's just we could it's just the, the level of discernment right um, about the data um but i i wasn't aware that you could bring a guest with you to be vaccinated. Uh, I think that that makes sense. Um, you know, when I think about somebody maybe who had a personal care attendant or somebody, you know, an elder who has someone caring for them in the house, it makes sense to me that we would want to increase the bubble of protection around them. So I think that's great. Wait, you didn't know about this? I didn't even know about this. Wait, so has your, has, has one of your parents already gone in? Uh, they, I don't think that it's become available yet for their age group, but my grandfather went in. <gasps> did, who, who went with him? It didn't look like anyone did. I don't know if we knew about this or yeah, I'll have to, I'm going to have to go. So I'm going to have to contact the family text chain, see what's up with this. Yes. Get on this right away. I mean, this is, this is one of those interesting ways in which the controversy was that people were like looking for an elder. Like there were news <laughs> stories that I was, that I was researching. And it's like at. a new kind like, of Tinder. Yes. Yes. Swipe left. No, not old enough. Swipe right. <laughs> no, not, not close enough to my house. You know, swipe again. Like, oh, this one's perfect down the street and, and, and won't be so hard to like talk to like oh, what they even left their number. I could do this, you know, so, like, I mean, it's, it's, ah, it's such it's so incredible because, you know, when the vaccines were first coming out, the all the rage was, oh, I don't know if I'm going to take it. I'm not going to take it. And now quickly shifting to get out of the way. Let me get it. And I, you know, I wanted that at the beginning. Um, we are hearing today that it has been approved, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is interesting because it's one shot. And so now we have multiple inequalities going on. You have the inequality of who is getting access to the vaccines, people using codes that there maybe aren't supposed to be, they weren't for them, people going to places that are further away from their homes because those clinics were set up to deal with that particular neighborhood. But I found out about it with technology, so I went and got it. Um, so you've got this inequality of access, of information, of technology to be able to get them. But then you also have this inequality of the vaccines themselves, right? Like two shots versus one shot. The Moderna um, we've heard has like um, the best testing against different things, but it's actually the hardest to transport. And it's the one that we have the least of, and it's the hardest on people's bodies in terms of recovery. And yet Johnson and Johnson is one shot, but it's not quite here just yet. It's got the approval and hopefully that'll come out. Out. But when you go and sign up for the vaccine and you go and get it, it's not like you get to pick. 
it's not like a drive through and you're like, I'll take a side of Johnson and Johnson. And then wait, what do you want in the car? And you ask the other people in the car, you want Moderna? Okay. What about you? You want to go fry? Okay. We're going to go mixed. We're going to go mixed variety pack. We want one of each, you know, like, it's not like that. You get what you get. And so in that way too, we're also all getting different kinds of protection just within the country. Mm-hmm. And we just passed half a million. We are no longer at a few hundred thousand. We are over half a million people who have died from the coronavirus. And we are the country in the entire planet. We are the number one country that has the most deaths. So if a coup comes after an uprising, now just to go back to that for a second, <laughs> which, which was the coup? Was the coup the Democrats winning? Or was the coup, was the attempted coup, you know, uh, very radical, white supremacist, um, incredibly extreme, extremely conservative and the right trying to keep Trump in place? Like, these dynamics are so complicated. Keeping someone in place, is that a coup? Or is taking someone out but using a democratic process to do it, is that a coup? And was that uprising Who's uprising? Like, it feels like yeah. we have parallel things going on at the same time. Well, I mean, I would say that for the 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 white supremacists, they they might describe themselves as a movement and that they have that they're electing Trump is was the result of uprising. Democratically electing Trump was the result of their organizing I was trying to think back to what it was like when like the tea party, you know, the tea party first hit the scene. Right. And of course, I mean, if we want to really bring in layers of tangents, all of the conversations about whether or not people should be mourning the death of Rush Limbaugh. Oh, because that happened in the last few months as well, please. Which it's, you know, I don't think that there's there's any need to mourn the death of an abuser somebody who caused direct harm to myself and to others, it's actually perfectly okay to feel relief when that person dies. I mean, to be clear, I think that the reason why there's even a debate to be had about whether or not to honor Rush Limbaugh is a result directly coming from the fact that Trump gave this fool and horrible human being a medal of honor um, at his last, you know, in person and, you know, moment of the State of the Union speech, you know. And so if you're able to give a horrible monster a medal of honor, then you set the scene to be able then to say, well, we're lowering the flags and honoring this person. I mean, they were, a, they won a medal of honor, you know, like that sort of reverence then gets you that sort of reverence, it, you know, in your death, in the afterlife. And so it's, there's so many steps, right, that are like leading to this moment. And today, and actually last night, we have the beginning of the CPAC conference, which is this like conservative political, you know, action committee that meets um, every year in their meeting in Florida. That's not shocking. This is where they usually meet. They're meeting in a slightly different space um, because of COVID, but it's in the same location. The same people are showing up and they rolled out last night, this huge statue that is made of gold that looks like Trump but it's a muscular Trump, so it doesn't quite look exactly like Trump. And 
he has on boxing shorts that are of the flag colors and, and decoration. And they wheel this across and people are super excited about this. And the call out today is, I'm sorry, there's this whole Christian story about like not worshiping false idols. Like there's biblical stories and lessons about this. And yet nice you're move. doing it. You are literally making a, a golden statue like these biblical stories tell about like creating these false idols. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on are we still then in an uprising moment for the conservatives in the country and for those who still are devout followers of Donald Trump well from from the as we try to untangle this here i think from the definitional perspective i think that that concept of of these white supremacists be being in uprising, I think that is maybe how they see themselves, is that what is true is different, right? Because we, as we were talking about earlier, as we were building this definition, it's like, no, actually an uprising has to come from actually being oppressed, right? So it seems like there's a mm -hmm. dissonance between maybe what we think about these white supremacists and what they think about whether or not they are oppressed, so they right. see themselves in uprising. I, I do not. I see them as like in the last gasps of trying to hold on to power that's been theirs for a really long time. And what do we do in that situation? Like, it feels like we're here a lot. And I can think about moments on a very like micro level, like me having disagreements with people. And it's at that moment of understanding that we are seeing things so completely different that the breakthrough happens where you could be like, oh, so you've been behaving like this and I've been reacting like that because we've been seeing each other in very different ways. But on a macro level, like, is this helpful <laughs> that we, we are at least potentially at a place of acknowledging that we are seeing things and defining them? relating to them very differently. Like, what do we do with that? Yeah, I think it's important. I think that is a place for breakthrough. And when we look at it across the society, that breakthrough doesn't mean that the white supremacists are going to have a breakthrough with the people who are the opposite of them. That is never going to happen. The the, 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 the sort of two poles, what I'm trying to describe is like two poles don't, aren't going to like invert and become a, a perfect circle. Right. It, but it, right. <laughs> but it's like the people who are not at a pole in that dynamic can actually identify it. And the other people can start to move in a different direction. So knowing people who can see and notice that like, oh yes, there is actually a organized national domestic terrorist movement that's led by white men that's willing to use violence in order to preserve their power. And that that is something that is different than what Republicans do, even though, even though they are enabling those, this, um, th they are enabling the white supremacists, they are supporting the white supremacists through policies and through other things that they've done. But that's actually not synonymous with 
everybody who sees themselves as a Republican, what they think and want and believe. And then that's different too from somebody who sees themselves as like a centrist, right? Who, or somebody who sees themselves as an independent, which is also different from somebody who sees themselves as a Democrat, which is also different than somebody who sees themselves as a progressive, which is also different than somebody who sees themselves as a radical, <laughs> right? So it's like, we start to get definition of this, this spread of perspectives. And, right. and I think that there's... The, the, that the contrast can help us to see what do we need to do to move the most amount of people in the same direction. Um, I think that people had a real breakthrough when that, when that. Insurgents, event, right. Yeah, event, I'm, yes. like, I'm like, what are we calling it? Like, <laughs> January 6th, people had yeah. an, an awakening of sorts. Yeah. And, you know, that just that what, what occurred to me was um, it, it wasn't surprising at all. I wasn't like shocked that people could like breach the Capitol. I mean, right. I was in the sense of like, wow, this is really blatant white privilege. They're like just you know, in like in relation with, with the, with the guards, like, Hey, we're just right. going to walk through here or even threatening the guards. Like I'm, I'm right. your, I'm in charge of you. Like you don't get to decide right now. I'm going to be walking right through here. Thank you very much. You know, it was, it was a, um, that, that white privilege, particularly white male privilege was really demonstrated better than, than I've ever seen it on a national stage. I think on that, on that day, because particularly if those, the actors didn't have um, other types of positional power. You know, like it's one thing if you see a white man or woman who is a senator walk past a, a guard and say like, I'm in charge sure. here. But it's another thing when you see somebody who is a working class person be able to use their, their power in that way. That's really, I think, where you see the, the racial privilege there. Right, right. I mean, in many ways, in a very opposite direction that we've also been talking about, you get to see that too with the vaccines. You know, like you have people who are like, I know how to use technology. I know and have the time to be on these apps or on the internet and constantly refreshing and looking at where I could get a vaccine. And I have a car and I have the means to drive far away and maybe go get it. And I'm going to. And I'm going to, and I'm going to do it in such a way where I'm not necessarily going to hide about it either. I'm going to be proud about it because don't we all just want the vaccine? And can't we all just get over like this inequality about like the vaccines? Like I got it and I'm helping and I'm doing my part. And it's so interesting like to, to watch this thing happen, both of them, and be like, yeah, I thought this was going to happen. Oh, look, it's happening. And I'm not sure how to stop either one. I don't know how to stop um, the infighting or the lack of following protocols and respecting them because so many of these things are on a quote honor system. Like it's on us to like, you know, really be making claims and, 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 and doing things because there's the scarcity of the vaccines. And then, you know, also seeing what happened on the 6th and being like, yep, yeah, saw that was going to happen 
figured that would happen. Oh gosh. And now I'm, I'm just watching it on TV. I'm not really sure what to do. Do I call my local, you know, congressional person and tell them I support you running for your lives? You know, like what, what is the call to make to like support in that moment? Do, you know, I'm, I was happy and excited that people on the left weren't there. You know, even though, even though the right said Antifa was in there, they're responsible for it. I'm happy that there was an absence of folks on the left by design because it was like, we're, we have nothing to do with this and we're just going to get hurt. And if no one's there to defend the building and the people with the most power in Washington, you think the police or the military are going to be there to defend us? They were attacking us this summer, right? So I, I, that's, that's where I'm seeing people responding right now is strategically using their power to be silent. It's almost like the most nonviolent reaction is the reaction that people are taking right now to just sit still and not try and get in that story as much as possible and keep eyes on the prize on another story. And there's a lot of absence in, you know, wanting to speak up and say anything about the vaccine distribution either, because we all just really just want we all just want the vaccine. And so those who are calling it out, you know, are, are, are doing so knowing that like, they also don't really want to call it out either. Like we all just want the vaccine. So it's, it's this really interesting place to figure out what to do. And then we have the Biden administration doing things that maybe we would have been up in arms about, and we're up in arms about in the previous administration, but now it's so complicated and there's so many things going on. How do you call out the president, you know, bombing Syria when, we also have the Johnson and Johnson vaccine coming out. How do you call out the fact that the first internment camp and detention camp for youth has opened under the Biden administration for folks who are migrants trying to come into the United States? Like things are happening again, but it's a different person and it's a different party and it's a different face, but they're very similar. And what are we supposed to do? What's the response supposed to be that is still holding us to our values, but is also still in support of a future that we want to have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, I think in the case of a massive rollout, like the vaccine, where we're going to see gaps in the system. And I think that's, that's what it is. You know, there's, what we we as a population can work on our social norms around what is permissible and, and acceptable in the society and what is not. It seems like those conversations are happening. And, you know, COVID has opened up a lot of discussions, I think, that were previously inaccessible about accessibility, right? Like what actually do those most vulnerable need to be healthy? And where is the vaccine rollout failing to reach people who don't have particular types of conditions? And what does privilege look like in this, uh, in this scenario? And where, where is the system failing? You know, I think we're just getting a glimpse of that. I don't think there, I don't know what what more we can do in this kind of a rapid response thing, we're going to see the errors in the system and we just got to make sure there's feedback loops to capture that so that it can be employed in, in the future, you know, where, where, which is one of the things I think that is, has been fascinating about the pandemic is that it happened during a time period 
where truth was contested in the popular discourse, like what facts are is contested right now in the popular Mm -hmm. discourse. And so then you have people who are trying to spread public health information at, Mm -hmm. is it like an all time low in terms of trusting government sources as as a resource? So the, the combination of distrust and conspiracy theories, and then that combined with mass media distribution at people's fingertips, right? Coordinated efforts to spread misinformation and, and all of that stuff. I, I mean, it just, I think. I mean, what's, what's been fascinating to me, Dee, in all that is that, yes, that has been happening since that was, that was part of Trump's, you know, campaign plan was like, you can't trust anything. You can't trust anything. And that had been building previous to Trump from other, you know, like conservative movements and speakers and influencers like Rush Limbaugh. And then it happens at a massive scale and at a government nationalized scale when Trump is in office. But, and it's still here after, you know, it, it came before, it came with, and it'll be here after. But one of the things that's super interesting is that even when Trump was in power, he always acted like he wasn't, right? Like he would question the government when he mm. was the president. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what the US is doing. I don't know who's going to fix mm. this. You know, like he kept acting like there was somebody else to hold accountable, even when he was the one to, to hold things accountable. I mean, like, that's what's so interesting about this like coup attempt. He acted like he was from the outside when he was the president at the time, right? Like that has been the fascinating thing of the last, you know, four years under his administration is how do you have a president who, you know, that gesture that people have when you're like, hey, you, and that person knows exactly that they're talking about them, but they still look behind them to be like, oh, oh, oh you're talking about me? <laughs> like, that's what Trump did for four years previous to that and is still doing now. Like, oh, who me? I don't, I don't know. Like, I would imagine that there might be a time where Trump will say, you know, the last president, that guy was a buffoon and he knows that he's talking about himself, but he just doesn't know how to do anything that's related to being held accountable and holding himself accountable. He just doesn't at all know how to do it. And so one of the things that I want to pivot to is, you know, I, I have asked folks in this last interview, like, this is it, you know, like the vaccine doesn't mean that COVID is over. The pandemic is still here we are wrapping up this year. And so, so many of these final interviews are actually not the last interviews. In fact, they're just foreshadowing. And we can only imagine as listeners and readers of these interviews, like what's going to happen to these folks afterwards? What happened to these individuals right after that interview based on what they said during that time? And so, you know, we t- we've talked a lot maybe not you and I, but others in this podcast in this year, maybe you've had these thoughts like thinking about 9-11 and thinking about the last great, big, huge in our lifetime event and the long-term effects that it had. We have these anniversaries of 9-11 where we like stop and reflect. And really what we're honoring is the people who died on that day, but we're not, you know, acknowledging that there are things that changed that have not changed back. Like TSA was brought in 
us giving up our, you know, freedom to not be touched and to not be scanned and not have all of our information given and guided by, you know, the government. Like we gave up being able to bring our own water and food and materials and breast milk and things on planes. Like those things are not coming back. We, we, we gave up getting food for free on a, you know, domestic flight. We've, we've given up so much for quote, you know, safety, given up freedoms for quote safety. And those aren't coming back. And that's not what we mourn every year on September 11th. We mourn those who die, who died. And I'm wondering, you know, as we are finishing up this first year, knowing that it's not over yet, what do you want to never forget about this last year, things that happened? And what do you think might be also forgotten? And so let's really make sure that we don't forget that because things are going to change in a way that, it's not that we don't want to forget them. Like they're just gone, just completely gone besides, you know, and on top of the over half a million people, you know, like at Christmas time, it was, you know, a few hundred thousand and it hasn't been that long. It's jumped tremendously to already half a million. So what are your thoughts on what do we want to put in this time capsule to not forget about this moment? And also what are those extreme things that we think not only will we forget them, but we will forget them because they are not coming back. Yeah. The, um, I mean, the first thing of course is, is the, the fragility of life. You know, I think we're, we're close to that right now because there is so much death, you know, it's, it's, not hard from most of us, if we don't have direct experience of losing someone to COVID, we know somebody who does at this point. Mm -hmm. And, or we know somebody who's been sick, we've worried about somebody or we've worried about ourselves. And so that fragility of life and, um, and whatever feelings that brings up for us, I think it is important to remember because one of the things that we don't deal with well, I don't think as a society is death. The fact that, you know, we, that we don't live, I think, as if with the full scope of, of death um, in our minds, you know, we're really trained to put it out of our minds. And that's not true for people who have experienced the the death of loved ones or people who are you know working with chronic illness or other things people who have consciousness that their life is going to end soon um, are dealing with this all the time and I feel like as a society right now we're ill-equipped to deal with our proximity to death as a people and all of the grief and anxiety that that is raising for folks um so I think you know, maybe there's an, a, a chance for our culture to shift in the way that we, the way that we hold the fragility of life. And related to that, I think in this solitude, in this, you know, I've been really, um, winter is hard for me anyway. I live in the Northeast. Winter's hard because it's cold. There's low light. Like it tends to be a kind of cavernous hibernation time anyway. Uh, but it's especially difficult this winter because we can't gather indoors with our friends. And so we're not getting those moments of lift that you would normally have in the winter. And in the solitude, just really remembering like how special it is to gather with people. And 
when we get to do that again, remembering the importance of living and not waiting for stuff. I mean, you think about how many people were going to start something next week or next month or next year, and they just kept putting it off. And then something like COVID hits where our whole reality, our whole sense of possibility has been really tampered down for the past year. And so just this remembering that there's not, you know, we have to live with some faith that there is a future, but the future is actually unknown. And our decisions about what we do with our time and what our life is, our decisions happen in the present. We can take into account the future that we want, but our, our life is in the present. And something I feel grateful for is that in the years leading up to this pandemic, where my experience of it has just been that I've been like separated from my community, not able to engage the way I normally do. Um, and, and just, you know, being at home with my partner most of the time. And I think that what, what two things that have helped me the most during this time is number one, I built really strong relationships before in the years before this. So I feel like I had a lot of support in every way that I could need during this past year. We were showing up for each other, offering connection, offering ways to try to make sense of what was going on, you know, um, helping each other when different challenges arose. And I think the other thing that really helped is, is actually proactively doing, you know, different types of mind trainings in advance. Like I've been, you know, for, for 15 years, I've been meditating and that really has made a difference over the past year to be able to find home in myself during times of immense grief and crisis and so many I mean you think about all the different crises we've described in the past 45 minutes right that we've been living with in this country and my practices of of just mindfulness and meditation have kept me balanced this year thank you for that very, you know, thoughtful and detailed list of some of the things that, you know, have gotten you through the last year and things that you have, you know, deployed this last year that you've been deploying for a minute previous to this, right? Um, and, you know, when you talk about the fragility of life and the proximity to death and that being so prevalent and so um, you can't ignore it right now in this year, you know, in this year, it's not just COVID that we saw, right? Like we also saw that that proximity to death and that fragility of life is compounded and has always been compounded um, for certain, you know, marginalized communities um, and groups within the United States who have historically lacked consistent access to particular things that make life less fragile, yes. that make the proximity to death further away, you know? And so 
We've had this summer state-sanctioned violence. We have people who had COVID, survived COVID, but then died at the hand of the hands of the police. So it wasn't mm-hmm. COVID that killed them. It was the police that killed them. And I'm talking about George Floyd. And in particular, that in his autopsy, he had COVID. And he mentioned that to the police officers as he had been pulled over to try and get the knee off of his neck. I had, you know, I can't breathe. And I, I've been coughing. I just had co- like all these things, right? Then we have the fact that people are still to this day dying of cancer. Cancer was the, you know, top three killers, you know, heart disease, cancer, and other things, right, in the United States. So people are still getting, contracting, developing, having things metastasized and dying from cancer right now. And that could be compounded by, but I survived COVID or I'm afraid of getting COVID because I'm on cancer treatment medications right now. We have folks who are have died and are still dying because of war, whether that's domestic wars or international wars, that's outside of COVID. We have people in Texas who just these last few weeks died because of climate change, because of unnatural man-made disasters and dying essentially from capitalism, from the free market of heat and power and electricity that has nothing to do with COVID. We have people who are dying in prisons and not dying in prisons because of COVID, but dying in prisons because of our prison system and how it's set up to work, including people dying in detention, Mm -hmm. in detention for being criminalized, for just trying to actually live a better life. Mm -hmm. And that has all happened this year too. And so how you die and the many ways that you die, have we just had an extra bonus one added, which is this pandemic and the fact that the government has for the first year and the first few months tried really to do nothing to prevent it from spreading and killing us. And so we have all these things that have been good times, good times, huh? (laughs) Good time to be alive. And, and I think, I think the thing that I often think about during this time, when you're speaking about, you know, those strong relationships that you developed and have been, you know, cultivating throughout your life, because there were other times that felt really hard, that felt very fragile, that felt like you were close to the proximity of maybe, you know, your own death or the death of a type of way that you were living your life. And so you build these strong relationships, you begin to meditate and create that home of self. And then you get to this moment, you're like, I'm okay. And it reminds me of this thing that I've often thought about, about the difference between bubbles and kites, you know, like bubbles are great, but they are grounded in nothing and they are incredibly fragile. And it doesn't matter how big or how small they are, how connected to other bubbles they are, eventually they pop Mm. and it's over. But a kite, a kite is literally grounded in order for it to work and function at all. And it still gets to fly and it still gets to be as beautiful as that bubble just having its own ability to just work with the wind and and rise and fall and move to the left or the right. But when it falls, you have the ability to collect it, repair it and go again because Mm -hmm. it's grounded because it has someone that is literally holding onto it, looking at it, watching out for it. And so if anything, during this time, I think we've learned that bubbles are cute and awesome and rad, but what we actually read right now is to invest in kites. And to invest in being grounded and to invest in watching and paying attention to how one another is moving so that we can be there in that crisis or critical moment when there's not enough wind and there's not enough support and we fall. Yeah, that couldn't be more true. And I know that I can think of different seasons in my life where different people were, you know, 
holding on to the string for me, right? As I was the kite out there Mm -hmm. (laughs) just in the wind. And I can think of the ways that, you know, I've held on to the string for others. And it's a, it's a beautiful metaphor. I, I think there's, there's another layer to it that I'm trying to figure out on the spot. I don't know if I can, but what's the version where we're all kites and we're all strings, you know, where you're a holder and you're a kite simultaneously. Cause I feel like that's when we really get into the mutuality of it is that like you are a kite and you are a holder of kites and I am holding your string and you are holding my string. I think that that is outer space. (laughs) If we're using a kite metaphor, somebody has to be where gravity is pulling them. Mm -hmm. And when we're just out in space, like I just saw this beautiful picture and it's of an astronaut that is, you know, essentially walking in space is going on a little space jaunt and has like a string. Uh, it's not it's just a string. It's some side of a cord, some big device, strong device that is attached to the shuttle or the space sh- uh, station where they are anchored right out in space. But they are out just out in the middle of space, you know, and the connectivity sometimes isn't seen. Like there is mm. this person in an astronaut spacesuit out in the middle of nowhere with something attaching them to a space sh- station that's out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and I am watching you and, and I'm looking at that picture. So I am connected to it, but there is no string that you can actually see. And so I think that, you know, when we get to that place of wanting to be grounded to one another, but maybe not to the earth, that's then where that levity can have this like multiple interaction and interconnectivity. But I think that the thing that we've also learned during this time is that we have to be grounded to the earth. We need that gravitational pull because part of us being ungrounded from the earth is kind of how this all started with climate change and migration patterns because of climate change being a huge, you know, sort of patient zero, if you will, of how we got to this pandemic. It's not for no for no reason. It's not like out of nowhere. It's not like some biblical story of how this, you know, plague came. Like we know where this is coming from. There is connective tissue. And so I, you know, it's it's going to be interesting how far into the future we need to go before we have an, enough time and information to properly look back and see all of those different connections. Um, and for me it's always, you know, for what purpose? For what purpose? What's the intention behind really trying to figure out where this started and where this came from? Because if we're not actually going to use that to try and prevent it, and we're just going to try and use it to blame someone, then that's pointless to me. I have a final question for you, which is, if you were to leave in this interview and in this time capsule of sorts, a message to your future self or to future family members who um, maybe will be adults or elders at some point and look back at your interviews, what advice would you give to them about what to keep them anchored with and how you got through this time so that you remember that yourself or you're able to pass that on to others? What are the key lessons? I've got relationship building. I've got relationship building with yourself. What else? is like quintessential to how you've gotten through this moment that you don't want to forget.
Yeah, there, there's, where is your attention going? I think that it's very easy in, you know, at, at times over the past year with the lack of information that we had, it, it felt very chaotic. And there, as humans, we actually need to take action to manage where our attention is going and making sure that we are not getting ourselves immersed into chaos because that will cause our mental health to decline and it will take away from our stability and our ability to show up. So there's that one of like, don't allow myself to get immersed in chaos. It's not helpful. And also, or because there's enough chaos in actual life, right? So like what, right. what of it, yeah, what of it can we uh, manage by, by just what we pay attention to? Like, for instance, is it important to watch the news 24 hours a day? Or would that time actually be better spent doing something else? What is, what is going to be the biggest payoff? Like, do I, need, do I need all this to be breaking news? Or are there other things that I need to be paying attention to that would overall help me as a human? And then related to that, I think, is just trying to figure out ways to help others and just, you know, it's hard to sit at home alone and worry about what the future is going to be. So can I bring a jar of soup to my elderly neighbor? Can I, uh, you know, see if there's anything I could do to help my grandfather? Is um, Can I offer a free program online for people who that might make them feel better? Can I write something or just maybe pick up the phone and call someone and say, how are you? What are you doing? You know, or um, little things that we can do to, to uplift each other. You know, even if I just take a ride down the street to my parents' house with, with my dog to visit for 15 or 20 minutes in the cold outside, you know, those little things matter that we do to check in on each other and take care of each other. So there's a lot there. And the things that really stood out to me, not just in that moment, but in previous, you know, uh, minutes of this conversation, I've heard a lot of stay connected and get connected. And I've heard a lot of uplift yourself and others and, and check in with people and be, be of help to others. Try not to add fuel to the fire, um, but try and figure out a way to, you know, keep people safe and find a way to not be a part of the problem. And I have never seen you in any of those lights. I've only seen you in all of the ways in which, um, you know, you're, you're guiding us and reminding us in yourself to be. And I'm wondering then, it, it makes me wonder, like, is this new then? Like, what, is, this, is this idea of like, you know, having the relationships and, you know, meditating and staying connected, it, you know, like it definitely feels like, yes, and that is what I have found and, and it's been super important. And that's mostly where this podcast came from, right? Like, how could I help? How could I check in with people? How could I like somehow contribute to this moment? And mostly it's been by just archiving it and memorializing it in some sort of way. Have you had an experience where none of those things happened? 
I mean, I think that I've been really, I've really devoted my life to this stuff, which for me comes out of a desire for sustainable community development, which is something that I've been tracking for decades and like learning what are the practices of healthy community. So that's why, you know, I didn't start, I didn't start meditating a year ago, right? I started meditating 15 years ago. And I think that right now, because we had such a dramatic shift in what was available in the society, mm-hmm. a lot of people are realizing that they don't have the resiliency that they thought they did because they right. have not been prepared for this kind of a shift because they haven't been thinking about it. And that's something I think, you know, when people think about the future, they're holding so many assumptions about what societal structures will be in place for them. If they're really invested in the status quo future, they're assuming that the job is going to be there. They're assuming that the banks are going to be there. The roads are going to be there. The public transportation is going to be there. The grid is going to be there. The water is going to be there. There's so many things that people are assuming when they barrel forward with all the assumptions of this future that's been promised to them. But for those of us who've been looking at the climate crisis for a long time, we know that those things aren't givens. We've been preparing for this type of crisis. I mean, pandemic has been openly discussed in climate plans for how long, right? Decades. So we knew that this was coming. We didn't know exactly what it was going to be like. And I wouldn't say that I was like, you know, I'm not one of the, the people who has you know, you, you read these crazy stories. I actually think this came up in one of our previous interviews this year of the people who have the like bunkers on the island and the helicopter right. in their garage, you know, like there's those type of like, I'm, the I'm preppers. like the, the individualist preppers, you know, and then there's the other people who are like the community preppers of like, here's how we need to be yes. resilient. And, you know, <laughs> there were so many brilliant people who had great ideas for mutual aid networks that no one cared about. And then when COVID hit, they already were like, hey, listen, folks, I've thought about this. Here's what we need to do to make sure that the most vulnerable get groceries every week. And people were just able to put stuff into action. And I've heard amazing stories from my from many of my friends about that type of stuff where an idea just took life that they've been thinking about for quite a while, you know, because it's isn't this isn't a surprise. What happened wasn't a surprise. This was predicted. And also folks like you and I and various other people that we know who have been pushed out of places and spaces to be the folks that we care about systemically, policy-wise, culturally, you know, we have been, you know, if we're still alive, we've been life trained for this moment. We know how to get through moments where nobody shows up and nobody's there to save you. And in fact, the people at your doorstep are there to cause more harm. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we have been in that life. So when the pandemic and this horrible crisis comes, the only issue for me that has been bigger is great. Now there's more of us. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know who the helpers are exactly who has more power than me, because now we're all in different versions of lacking something. And so, you know, it's, it's been such an interesting time we've got to stop this interview. We've got to stop this podcast. And there's so much that it will be unsaid, unfinished, undone, but that's life. It's the same thing that happens in just life in general as well. 
So any final thoughts before we say goodbye? I mean, one thought is just thank you for, for doing this and, and hosting these conversations. And, you know, my final thought, I think, really is what, what I've come to uh, through this experience is that social change happens when we are able to maintain vision during times of crisis, to be able to hold a vision for some kind of a future when in crisis actually shifts something in us and it shifts something in the world around us. And I think that this year we've been able to see that in how people have imagined their way forward and made things happen. And I think we need to remember that, you know, when we're in crisis is that that is a time for dreaming and it's a time for innovation. It's a time to grow and it's a time to expand our sense of possibility. Well, now I'm going from a kite metaphor to a weightlifting metaphor. And so with that, I just want to say, Danielle, thank you for being my spotter and I'll be your spotter any day. Thank you, buddy. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast sponsored by the New Economy Coalition, a membership-based network representing the solidarity economy movement in the United States. Visit NEC at neweconomy.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.